epistle lesson and sermon text is from Romans 7. I'm going to read verses 15 through 20. And so submit yourself to God's inerrant word. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do good is present in me, but I cannot find the ability to do the good. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we need your help yet again to understand your word and to apply it, to live it, to do it. And so help us to hear with unstopped ears and with a heart that embraces your truth, that loves and delights in your law, and, that, and, and with lives that go out from here doing it. We pray that you would accomplish this in us and through us and use your word to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You are at war. I am at war. Everyone here who is a believer is at war. The warfare is intense. It's spiritual. And the stakes are high. Both sides want your soul. This war is far more important than the war on terror, more important than the wars on poverty and crime and drugs, more important than either of the world wars, more important than any war in all of history. It's also infinitely more important than any of the so-called culture wars or the culture war, which, which tend to misidentify often the real enemy and distract us, distract Christians from what is the most significant war of your lifetime and my lifetime, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you live, no matter what era you live in. This war isn't happening out there. It's not taking place outside of you. No, there's a civil, civil war going on, and it's being fought within you, inside of you. In this war, there are no agreed-upon truces, no cease fires, no timeouts, no white flags being waved. There's no mercy and there's no neutrality. There can't be. If you're neutral or half-hearted in this war, you're losing. You must 
pick a side and fight tenaciously. You must fight literally to the death. There are battles to fight, you see, and there is a war to win. The ongoing battles, the, the daily skirmishes in this war are fought by two sworn enemies, the old you and the new you, the old man and the new man, your old sinful nature in Adam and your new spiritually minded nature in Christ. On one side is your sinful flesh, and on the other side is your new regenerated spirit. For those who have experienced the new birth. Paul says in Galatians 5 that the war is between our flesh and the Holy Spirit. That's the terminology he uses. He writes there, for the, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit. You, you hear that opposition. And the spirit desires what is against the flesh. He goes on to say, these are opposed to each other. They are at enmity with each other. They are at war with each other so that you don't do what you want. Galatians 5, 17. Being a Christian is like driving a car down a road that has two deep and dangerous ditches on each side. The road is narrow, only slightly wider than the car, and there are no shoulders. Both ditches have all kinds of sin waiting for you there. And if you swerve even a little bit in either direction, you'll immediately, in be, you'll immediately be in one of the sin ditches. But I haven't even identified the problem. The, the, the problem isn't that the road is narrow and, and that there are no shoulders. The problem is that you have a passenger riding shotgun with you who's always trying to yank on the wheel and take the car into one of those ditches. He likes to, he likes to cozy up next to you like you're on a date. But when you least expect it, he grabs the wheel and turns one way or the other. If you take a, you take a second to look out, out your window and enjoy the view on your left side, he jumps on the opportunity to steer the car into one of the sin ditches. If you put your arm around him and drive with one hand, he will snuggle up next to you in order to get both of his hands on the wheel, leaving you powerless to keep the car on the road. What was true of Cain in Genesis 4 is true of me and it's true of you. God said to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, or its desire is to have you. But you must rule over it. Sin crouches like a lion that studies its prey and inches closer, looking for the right time to pounce. So do you wake up every morning aware that sin is crouching at the door? Not 
not at the, you know, not at the door of your bedroom. Sin is a lot closer than that. It's, it's crouching at the door of your heart, waiting to pounce on you, looking for the next opportunity to take you headlong down into a sin ditch. Too often we wake up thinking about the cares, riches, and pleasures of life, forgetting that we are in the trenches of intense warfare. And so we are quickly defeated because sin, after all, wasn't sleeping while we were sleeping. It never sleeps. It's always scheming, always crouching, always maneuvering, always inching, always angling to get its hands on the steering wheel of your heart, of your life, of your will. It never gets distracted by other less important wars or by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. It's focused. Sin is obsessed with getting control of you. So obsessed that it never thinks about anything else and never rests. If, if there's one thing that you can learn from your enemy within, if, if there's one thing that sin can teach you, it's that dedication and diligence and focus and preparation and commitment pay off in the civil war raging inside of you. The old man and the new man are in conflict. And Romans 7 helps us to get refocused in this inner conflict and recommitted to fighting the good fight in the Lord, rooted in Christ, in step with his spirit. The second half of Romans 7 is a rare window into Paul's inner life, into Paul's psychology. He relates to his readers the tug of war going on in his own soul, in his own life. That the hostile warfare between his old man and his new man, between his, the old Adam and the new man in Christ. And we determined last week that this isn't Paul when he was an unbeliever, when he was a self-righteous Pharisee, or even when he was a struggling carnal Christian, not that he ever even was that. No, this is Paul as a growing, maturing, mature believer. This is Paul, the author of Romans. This is Paul while he's writing the book of Romans, describing the spiritual hostilities within him. The first thing we see about this war in verses 15 and 16 is that it's it's a confusing conflict for I do not understand what I am doing Paul says because I do not practice what I want to do but I do what I hate now if I do what I do not want to do I agree with the law that it is good notice that all these verses are in the present tense I do not understand what I am doing. It's going on right now. Paul isn't describing his situation as an unbeliever here, as an unregenerate man. 
This is present tense autobiography. And what exactly is it that he doesn't understand? It's a strong statement. I, I'm perplexed. It's inexplicable. I, I don't have an explanation. Well, what is it that has him so mystified about this inner conflict? Well, Paul can't for the life of him figure out why given who he is, who God has made him to be, what God has done in his life, what's true, objectively true about him, he can't figure out why he still loses to sin. If I've been born again, if my old heart of stone has been removed and replaced with a new heart that loves God, if God has written his law, on my inside, on my heart, if the Holy Spirit has regenerated my spirit so that I have new loves, new affections, new want-tos and like-tos, new desires, if my old man has been crucified with Christ, if God now lives inside of me, having made me his holy temple, then why on earth do I still lose so many battles in the war against sin. Paul is sincerely perplexed. It's not that he has no explanation for any aspect of it, but he can't get all the way down to the bottom of it and explain it because there's a contradiction here. It's, there's a, it's insane what's happening inside of him. And th this is a point of major frustration for him because he desires above all as a Christian, as a regenerated man, he desires above all to be holy. He wants nothing more. And at the core of his being, he wants nothing more than to please God. And so it's inexplicable to him how there could be such a huge chasm between what he wants to do genuinely and what he so often does. This is an unsolved mystery for Paul. And it's a mystery that every believer experiences at some level. It's a mystery because it, while it's true to say I desire to do this or I desire not to do this, you have to admit that if you do do it or if you don't do what you want to do, if you do do what you didn't want to do, that there's also a desire that won out, a, a contrary desire that won out in that moment. But this is a battle that every born-again Christian faces, a war that everyone faces in Christ. If you've experienced the new birth, you can identify with Paul here because you too are regularly baffled by your sin. And you, have, you often have moments when you say to yourself, maybe even out loud, what in the world is going on here? How could I be so wretched? How could I think that thought? How could I say that thing? How could I do what I just did? I'm far worse than I realized. The more like the Apostle Paul you become, the more you will have moments like this. And every time you encounter this mysterious reality working itself out in you, it should drive you not to helpless despair, 
but to hope-filled prayer. That's where it drove Paul. And, and I keep taking us to the end of this chapter in these sermons because when, when Paul says in verse 24, what, wretched, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's not despairing. He's praying and taking himself to the gospel. He's praying like a psalmist would pray. And one of the reasons we know this is that in the very next breath, he gives thanks. In verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he's on a hopeful trajectory, a hopeful path. The good news that Paul clings to in verse 25 is that he is certain that he will win the war. Or to put it better, he is certain that Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, will win the war through him. He's forgiven and on the path to victory. And this gospel guarantee is why Paul can be open and honest now, before he gets to the end, before he experiences that rescue that he knows is coming. He can be honest and open now before God and before the churches in Rome about the depths of his sin problem without sinking into the depths of despair, without having to hide it. Paul doesn't despair or blame shift or make excuses or get defensive or try to hide his wretchedness. He simply confesses it, acknowledges it for what it is openly, and he continues to run to God for grace and mercy and help in his time of need, knowing that his time of need is going to be every moment from now to the end of his life, every moment in your life from now to the end of your life or until Jesus returns. If you continue to grow as a Christian, if you're born again and if you are, you will continue to grow. And if, if you continue to grow as a Christian, you or I should say, as you continue to grow as a Christian, you will become increasingly aware of and increasingly perplexed by, both of those things, increasingly aware of and increasingly perplexed by the depths of your worldliness, your egotism, your sinful sexual desires, your selfishness, your greed, your envy, your anger, your covetousness, your pettiness, your unbelief, your lack of joy, your arrogance. And so expect that as you become more like your Savior, you will also become more baffled by your sin, more mystified by the inexplicable mystery, by more, more, more perplexed by the insanity that plays out within you, and also more troubled by it more grieved, more sorrowful with a sorrow that leads to repentance and life. This confusing situation is the result of your identifying less and less with your old self, even though you still perform the deeds of the old self. As you become more like Christ, you identify less with your old, old sinful self and more with the sinless person that you will one day become. And so as you get closer to that day and closer to that future self, 
you identify less with the old self, which means that when you do his deeds, there's a sense in which you grow increasingly confused. You understand less because it doesn't make sense. Your ongoing transformation serves to make you more perplexed, more baffled when you do decide to sin. And in verse 16, Paul says that this inner conflict confirms that the law is good. You, you remember from previous sermons in the, earlier in the chapter, one of Paul's burdens in this larger text is to prove that the law is not the problem. God's word, God's standards, his righteous, holy requirements are not the problem. The law is holy. It is spiritual and Part of his proof for this is that his inner man, Paul's regenerated spirit, knows that what the law requires is right and good. When, when Paul experiences his confusing, inexplicable, we might even say somewhat disorienting battles with sin, when he, when he breaks God's law, even though he doesn't want to, when he doesn't do what he wants to do and he does do what he doesn't want to do, this whole perplexing experience is only possible, it's only, it's at least in large part perplexing because Paul knows that the law is actually good and true, that it's a good standard that he should measure up to, but he doesn't. Fellow believer, the law is not only good, it's also your friend. It's your, your helper. It, it performs, God performs through it, a good ministry in your life. The law is good, ironically, because it reveals to you how bad you are, how bad I am. It reveals, it shows, it highlights the perplexing contradiction going on inside of you. And this revelation is necessary for your growth in Christ. The spotlight of the law is center, it's critical to your sanctification. The law is like a measuring rod, and when you stand up next to it, you see how badly you fall short. The, the law is a spiritual x-ray or, or an MRI that shows us our diseases and blockages and brokenness below the surface, underneath inside of us. We need the law to show us our lawlessness. John says in, in 1 John 3 that all sin is lawlessness, not doing God's law. And apart from the law, we would be unable to see the contradiction that is so perplexing to Paul, so perplexing to you, so perplexing to me. So the first thing we see about this our spiritual conflict is that it's a confusing conflict that we will never fully understand. And that when you experience that, it's normal. It's not a good thing. It's not something you just accept and move on, but it's normal in your fight to experience that. And the second thing we see is that it's an internal conflict. Look at Paul's language in the rest of the passage, starting in verse 17, especially how many times Paul says things like in me or living in me or present in me. 
So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my flesh. For the desire to do good is present in me, but I cannot find the ability to do the good. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to practice. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. Okay, first things first, we need to make sure we're not hearing what Paul isn't saying, especially at, at the beginning and end of that section I just read, verse 17 and verse 20. He says twice, and once in verse 17, once in verse 20, that he is no longer the one sinning. I'm no longer the one. The, the one sinning, he says, is the sin that lives in me. You know, is he passing the buck? Is Paul relieving himself of responsibility? Is he making excuses and shifting blame? Well, of course not. He's not, he's not speaking in absolute terms here. He's speaking metaphorically to begin with. And But even more important than that, remember, he's already admitted, particularly back in verse 14, that he himself, I, Paul, am of the flesh. Paul the apostle is of the flesh. So this sin that he, you know, that he's blaming, it, it's, it's him. He is of it, okay? The, the sin that Paul blames is not something outside of Paul's person. Paul says it's living inside of him. It's part of him. It dwells inside the I. It lives inside the me of Romans 7. And so Paul's not trying to say that sin is, is somehow outside of him doing something that he, he wouldn't do. I'd never do that. He, he's not saying that his sin is something or someone other than Paul. Okay? So when we, when we see these eyes and me's and there's a divided eye, if you read the passage carefully, you realize that you can't be too absolute or black and white in the way you categorize things because Paul is not. You know, sometimes the eye is on this side, sometimes it's on that side, sometimes it's all of it together, and ultimately it's Paul is the whole thing. And so we don't need to hear what Paul is not saying. The only point Paul's making with this language in verses 17 and 20, is that the part of Paul that decides to sin is in some sense not what I said last week, I'll say it again this week, not his truest self. It's not the self that will endure for eternity. Sin lives inside of him, but it won't live in him forever. It's truly a part of him. He's responsible for his actions, but sin won't be part of him forever because at his core, now that he's a new man in Christ, at his core, Paul is regenerated. He is a new person with a new nature that is, we could say, incapable of sinning, that, that new nature. And someday this new nature will be the only nature Paul has. One day his sinful nature will be destroyed Completely, Paul won't be a sinner forever. He will have been a sinner 
saved, singing about it in heaven for all eternity, as you and I will be, but he won't be a sinner forever. But he will be a son of God forever. And so Paul identifies in verses 17 and 20 with his new nature. He identifies more closely, and we ought to as well, with his new self, the new man, which is eternal. Rather than with his old nature, which is passing away and in some sense already dead, already crucified. Even though Paul identifies with the new man more so than with the old man, even though he is rightly identifying with the new regenerated nature more so than with his old sinful nature, he still realizes that he can't get away from the old man in his life. Paul's old Adamic self, his old man, still lives inside of him still gets his hands on the lever on the levers and it, and he's not it's he's not going away he's not going anywhere paul no longer lives in the flesh but the flesh still lives in him sin no longer reigns in the believer but it still resides in the believer it's no longer president but it is present it's not king on the throne but it's still a citizen your sinful nature isn't something you can shed like a snake sheds its skin because it's because it's not an external reality that we're dealing with here but an internal one you can't get rid of it in this life any more than you can get rid of your DNA in this life when, when Paul says in verse 18 that he can't find within himself the ability to obey, he doesn't mean that the ability to do good has not been given to him or it's nowhere to be found at all. In fact, Paul would tell you that sometimes, even oftentimes, by the grace of God, he is able to locate the ability. He, he is able to find it, to use his verb there, the, the ability to do the right thing. If you read all of Paul's letters, you will learn that Paul believes it is possible for, for him and for you and me, for all believers to please God and obey his law. In fact, it's even possible for you to escape every temptation in one sense. You're not going to do it, but... There's a way out every time. You're not going not gonna to obey every time, but there's a way to obey every time. But here, Paul is focusing on those times when he fails to do what is good. He's, he, he's just narrowing in on those moments. In those moments, Paul's desire to obey God is still present. But for some mysterious reason, he's unable to find the will to fulfill his innermost desire. Can you identify with that struggle? Paul can't, Paul can't fully explain this confusing mystery. But what he does know is that these skirmishes between his sinful nature 
and his new nature take place, not out there, but in here. And so he, he takes this war with him wherever he goes, wherever he travels. Indwelling sin doesn't lie on the surface. It's embedded in your soul. It's lodged in your heart during this life. And one of the worst mistakes you can make is to underestimate the influence, the power, the capability, the tenacity of your live-in enemy. It's riding shotgun, but it only wants to wreck your faith. It's no friend, it's only a foe. This indwelling sin is what led Abraham to act cowardly and, and to, to, to be cowardly and, and to lie about his wife. It steered Moses into the ditch of murder. It took David on a covetous ride that ended in adultery, deception, and murder. It motivated Peter to deny the Lord to a teenage girl. Indwelling sin gripped Ananias and Sapphira and caused them to lie through their teeth to the Holy Spirit while they were in church. One of the things that makes indwelling sin such a formidable foe is that it lives inside us and knows us better than we know ourselves. Our evil enemy has, has an established beachhead inside of us. And the sad, frustrating reality is that we won't be able to eliminate it in this life. We wait for the Lord to eliminate it completely. But that doesn't mean that we're passive. It's, it's sort of a paradox. It doesn't mean you don't fight tooth and nail. The other thing that makes indwelling sin such a formidable foe is that it never slumbers or sleeps. Never goes on holiday. It never gets discouraged. It never gives up. I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, when, you know, the enemy, the devil, knows, surely knows what's coming, and yet... He doesn't give up. The sin inside of you is the same way. Never gives up. The enemy within is relentless, and this means that the war within is continuous. And so the next point, it's a, it's a constant conflict. There are no timeouts, no half times, no changing ends of the field after the first and third quarters. The, the enemy is always waiting for you on the line of scrimmage, and it plays smash-mouth football every play. The constancy of the enemy and the constancy of your conflict with the enemy means you can't ever let your guard down. When you do, you'll find yourself in a sin ditch before you have time to blink. And what everyone who has been a Christian very long knows is that you are most likely to let your guard down during times of victory. 
the higher you are spiritually, the more vulnerable you are to the enemy's schemes and stratagems, his arrows and snares. Some of our greatest defeats as Christians occur right on the heels of our greatest victories. So don't make the mistake of congratulating yourself for the battles that you win because the enemy won't wait until you've finished celebrating to launch his next attack. Sin will fire its arrows when you have the least amount of armor on. That's when it will fire the most arrows. And oftentimes this is during times of spiritual success and growth. So don't become complacent. Don't become self-satisfied. Always remember that the victory is being won not by you, but by God in you, by the Spirit in you, by the Lord Jesus in you. Don't become complacent because the internal conflict is constant. No breaks. And it will follow you. It will be with you. It will be present in you. It will be living in you all the way to your death. It will be with you on your deathbed. In closing, I want to remind you of the big picture and of the gospel in this passage. And we'll come back next week and, and finish, Lord willing, Romans 7. Talk about the, those last few verses and tie some things together. Let me just say one or two things about the big picture and, and, and the gospel hope and guarantee and promise as we look ahead to the end. In the grand scheme of things, if you're a Christian, you should expect to win some battles. But you should also know, because, of what's, because Scripture is true, that you will lose some battles. Not, not because you've given up ahead of time or you've conceded victory here and there. Okay, I'm going to lose... I'm going to decide to lose here and there and over there. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm so talking about is that Scripture is very clear that if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and you make God a liar. So that's just a starting point. So at, as a believer, you should expect to win some battles and lose some battles. But here's kind of the qualifier and, and a way to put that, to get that paradox together, you know, without becoming... You know, knowing that you're going to lose without becoming defeatist, you should also expect to be winning the war, to be growing in godliness, to be on an upward trajectory that's going over and up, up and to the right. You will lose some battles, but you will win the war, and you are winning the war through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verses 15 to 20 teach us that the old man wins some battles, but the new man wins the war through the second man. And there's no winning the war at the end if you're not winning the war now. You, you can't, you, there can't be a, you know, an absolute slaughter where there's really no war taking place at now, but then expect to win at the end. If, if the promise of victory applies to you at the end, then the promise of victories in the battles now will be taking place inside of you. If you're not 
winning the war, then the spiritual activity within you, it, it isn't a, a real conflict, is it? It's just a one-sided slaughter, and feeling guilty about it won't get you to heaven. When Paul asks in verse 24, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's asking who will rescue him from the presence of sin because he hates the sin that's still sticking to him, still living in him. In other words, who will bring me to perfection? Who will make me sinless? Because that's what he wants. Not because he, he just wants to brag and he's self-righteous and he wants to say, look what I've done. He knows it's God that's going to have to do it. He knows it's going to be, he has to wait till the end. But he wants it because he wants to glorify God in everything he does and says, every action. And the answer is that God will do this for Paul at the end of his life. After he finishes the race, after he has fought the good fight faithfully in the power of the Spirit. You see, Paul expected, he eagerly anticipated being delivered from the presence of sin at the end of this journey, at the end of this war, because this was the trajectory that Paul was already on. He's not expecting something that's totally different from the trajectories on, like I'm going this way, but I'm glad I'm gonna end up over here. No, he's on the trajectory by the grace of God. Paul knew what his final destination looked like because he knew which train he was on, which train God had put him on. Paul was already walking in holiness by the grace of God, so he knew that one day God would complete the work that he had begun in Paul by making him completely holy, completely sin sinless. The path of holiness now leads to complete holiness at the end. A few years ago, I took, I took the boys, my boys, to the Royal Gorge in, in Colorado, and, and some of us ziplined across the gorge, which I think, if my memory serves, is, is a thousand, at least a thousand feet high and maybe over a thousand feet across. And as I was about to take off across the gorge on this zip line, there were, there were two things that I wanted to see happen. Number one, I, I wanted the other end to be firmly connected. Okay? I, I was looking at this end, and I was like, okay, if the other end's that good, I, I should be all right. But I, I definitely wanted that other end to stay firmly connected. And, and I wanted to have enough momentum to make it to the other side, which from what I had observed was not a guarantee. You see, it's not enough to be a baptized Christian who is headed generally and vaguely in the direction of the celestial city of heaven. Your, your zip line, if you will, must be firmly connected to heaven, to, to the Christ who reigns in heaven. And you must have spirit-empowered momentum, again, if you will, that will take you all the way to the end. You see, Paul knew that God would rescue him from his sinful nature. He was already giving thanks for it in verse 25. He knew that he would be rescued, delivered from this presence of sin that plagued him in this life because Paul knew 
what God had already begun in him. He knew that he was firmly united to Christ. And Paul knew that the spirit of holiness who lived inside of him would bring him safely into God's heavenly kingdom, safely to the other side. When I left one side of the gorge to go to the other, it wasn't me pushing off that got me to the other side. It was, you know, positioned right, and they give you a little push, and they make sure that it happens generally. In your walk, in your journey to the celestial city, in your walk of holiness toward complete holiness, it's not you pulling yourself along, bringing yourself along, pulling yourself up by your shoestrings out of sin. It is the Spirit of God living in you, bringing you safely into God's heavenly kingdom. The confusing, internal, constant conflict that plagues you in this life, in one sense, you can turn it into a source of encouragement it's evidence that you are on the path to eternal life. If reading Romans 7 makes you wonder if Paul has been reading your diary or observing your life, take comfort that there is a spiritual war going on within you. Because without this spiritual war, you're not a true believer. If there's no war that you're winning, you're not in Christ. Keep fighting the good fight of holiness. But also remember that even your new self, even your new nature, the one that will endure forever, the one that is incapable of sinning, the, the new man is incapable of doing good when it's flying solo, when it's on autopilot, apart from the help of Christ and the Spirit, apart from the energy and the power of Christ and his resurrection, his death and his resurrection. You won't find within yourself the ability to get across the gorge on the zip line. You will only find the resources you need to complete your course if you're looking to Jesus for everything you need. Remember what I said last week. You glance at yourself and you gaze on Christ. And don't get that backwards. Don't gaze on yourself, on what's going on inside, on how you're doing, on your strategies, on your power and your resources. You, you have to look at that, but you glance at that as you're looking to your Savior, the one who has, res has rescued you, the one who is rescuing you now, and the one who will rescue you at the end. So I close as I did last week with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.
Let's pray and thank God for the victory that we have in the reigning king. Oh God, who will rescue us from this body of death? We are wretched sinners. We give thanks that there is an answer to that question. And we give you thanks, God, that through Jesus Christ, you have rescued us and will continue to rescue us, continue to give us victory, and will finally one day rescue us completely, not only from sin's penalty and its dominating power, but also from its presence. Oh, Lord, help us to long for that, to give thanks for it now, to live in the light of it. We pray that this week, by your spirit working in us, we might bring more of that future into the present, that we might live as new creations in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.